You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome. I'm Fred Long, and this is Proof Text, and I'm with Michael Halcombe, and we're bringing to you uh, this episode of Proof Text where we're working through Galatians, we're working through the Greek text, and uh, Proof Text is a podcast dedicated to looking closely at scripture and thinking about it in terms of theology and formation. And uh, how are you doing, Michael? Uh, I'm okay. Yeah. Um, Just uh, looking at the trends of the world and uh, a little little, um, unsettled by them, but that is what it is. Uh, Yeah. So we're in Galatians and... um, we're at chapter two, finally, and we're starting with verse one. So how about I read that in Greek? Uh, maybe maybe we can try to focus on one for this side of the break, and then on the other side of the break, see if we can get to verse two. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right. So uh, I'll read the Greek here uh, of verse one only, and then uh, on the other side, I'll read verse two. So it says this. Epita dia de catesaroneton, palin aneven is yerosolima metavarneva, sum paralavon ketiton. All right. That's it. So, um, epita, epita, um, yeah. this is an adverb that we've seen before, and it's in a sequence. So, if you go back to 121, Paul. And in 118, actually, 18 and then 21, Paul is is laying out here a narrative. Uh, In in Greek, uh, this would be a diegesis. This is a technical part of a a discourse. Speeches have these more than letters, I would think. Uh, And that's why people think that Paul's letters are more like speeches than just simply a letter, particularly a personal letter. But he's Paul is stringing together a series of nexts, you know, this, then this, then this, next this. So, so then through 14 years, uh, again, I went up into Jerusalem with Barnabas, uh, taking along Barnabas, also taking along also Titus. Yeah. So I went into Jerusalem with Barnabas. And then you have this post-nuclear participle, sum, sum para labon, ke uh, titon, taking along also Titus. So what else happened? He took along Titus also. And the ke titon, the, the also Titus, we'll see is significance because um, there's going to be some that are going to try to do something to Titus, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. So that add-on is significant, we'll see. Yeah, so that's the basic grammar. You got three prepositional phrases. One is a time indicator. One is uh, spatial, like into Jerusalem. It was through 14 years, into Jerusalem. And then you have the meta with Barnaba, uh, which is going to be uh, genitive, except it's uh, Barnaba is an Aramaic word, uh, comes in as a name. So you're not going to see inflected endings. Um, yeah, and that's uh, 
Yeah. So what are you seeing here, Michael, in these verses? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting uh, to think about that. The other Ketesaron et eton, to translate that as sort of, uh, I think you said through 14 years. I get that as with the genitive. Most uh, translations say after 14 years. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me. But then he says uh, also palin. So each of these first two prepositional phrases, he he sort of fronts with uh, an adverb, right? So you have the epita fronting the first prepositional phrase, and then the uh, palin fronting, well, I guess the the next uh, clause or the next uh, bit precedes the verb here. So again, so he says again, I went into Jerusalem again. From when? Like, do we have the first account when he went into Jerusalem? What? A- yeah, yeah. Well, earlier we had that account, right? He Let's went take it back there. Yeah. So uh, earlier, <clears throat> verse eighteen, he went up. Same verb, uh, I think. Right on Erkomet. No, this one's a different verb. That's kind of interesting. So in verse eighteen, he uses on Erkomet, whereas here in two one is using Anab. So that would be interesting um, why he's changing. I mean, anabeno means to, well, to ascend, to go up, whereas um, anerkamai means to to go up. Hmm. Yeah. Also in 117, I mean, it's a clear contrast, right? 117 with 118 and 2-1. I did not. I did not go into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, this, this seems to be a very important uh, mm-hmm. point for him. Part of the reason I'm drawing our attention to this. Why, yeah. why is he so interested in movement in and out of Jerusalem for himself? Yeah. yeah. And I think 18 is the, is key. So 17 he did not go in, but then 18, he did go up into, and then there we learned that he came to, um, what is it, to become acquainted with, or to really, the istoreo, um, to visit with the, the, the sense of learning, to learn something, to, to, to meet Cephas or, or Peter. Mm. And he remained with him 10 days. So very specific. Um, yeah, that he's going there, but he's not meeting with a whole lot of other people. He did see he, he did see James. So, yeah. And we're going to see later in just a few verses, uh, a few more podcasts, I guess. We'll get into, you know, why he's he's wanting to clarify um, he, that he's been to Jerusalem, but not meeting with people because he doesn't want to be dependent on them, I think, in terms of gospel message. He wants to be interdependent, right? He wants to say that I'm independent. We had an agreement. We're working to we're working together, but separately. And then he's going to explain that a little bit later that we agreed. We agreed to certain terms and that Paul would go to the nations, whereas Peter to, you know, to the nations, uh, to, to, I mean, uh, those of Israel, I think, or those of the Jews, I think is how he says it, Judeans. So there's some, well, really Peter to the circumcision. Yeah. 
that he would proclaim the gospel to the uncircumcision. This is in 2.7, just as Peter would go to the circumcision. And so they had this kind of arrangement. And this the reason why this is important is because the issue of circumcision is precisely the problem with the Galatians is that it seems that they're being urged to be circumcised, um, urged or encouraged or really forced into it in order to be acceptable socially or religiously. And Titus, we're going to see, was also, they attempted to force him to get mm-hmm. circumcised. Well, that, yeah. that's a, so let's talk a little bit about Barnabas and Titus. I mean, at Barnabas, we get mention of him in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. Uh, Colossians tells us that uh, uh, Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. So I don't know mm-hmm. if we're talking about John Mark there, like, mm-hmm. uh, but probably that may be likely. And then we get, again, mention of him in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul makes the comment. He's talking about a workman's pay, you know. Uh, don't don't Barnabas and I uh, have the right to work for a living? But the only other uh, times we hear of Barnabas is in Acts. And he's mentioned all through Acts, from Acts uh, 4 on up through Acts 15, but really concentrated in Acts sort of uh, 13, 14, and 15, uh, the activities of Barnabas. And yep. he's, he's with... Uh, Barnabas is the one who brings Paul to the apostles and uh, he, he goes back and he reports about Saul, uh, Saul's journey, Paul's journey um, on the Damascus road uh, to the apostles. And so um, Barnabas, as we find out in Acts four, his name means son of encouragement. Uh, And uh, yeah. Yeah, so he, he's he's someone who uh, he has a good in with the apostles, yeah. and um, he he becomes a close associate of Paul. Yeah, so he seems to be an encourager. Like he really lives into his name. I think that's why I think names are so interesting. Whether we, you know, how is it that we we live into our names? Is do they affect us, or do we think about it, or? There's something else going on there, but I mean, he really does seem to live into his name. He takes Paul under his wing and then introduces him and he and Paul are doing stuff. And then they do have a falling out, right? They do have a falling out and it's over John Mark. And uh, because John Mark left, left a mission midway. And then the next trip, Barnabas wants to take him along. And Paul's like, no, he left us. And so (laughs) it said they had a sharp disagreement over it. So it's interesting um, that he goes to, 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 to then, I guess, mentor or encourage John Mark. And I think it's fascinating that eventually Paul and him are reconciled, you know, John Mark. Yeah. Um, but you can have serious disagreements with even good friends and ministry companions. And I think, um, you know, there's a lesson there about not panicking about that, like not dissing and writing off the other person. Uh, but to know that the Lord is going to use it, you know, use it for good. You know, I mean, just they had a disagreement and they went their way, their their ways. I think it's kind of interesting point there. This you is know, we hold this on is, to grudges and stuff, and maybe we shouldn't just let things go. 
This yeah. is interesting in my, my sermon prep for this week. I've been mulling over this question. Um, I, I know we have the verse in the New Testament that talks about uh, the Lord works all things uh, for good according to those who are called in Jesus Christ. Um, but, you know, like, I guess my my sort of disposition is to be really curious about things and to, to question pretty much everything. Um, or to just ask questions, uh, not in a, not in a, I don't know, negative sort of way, but so that, that's one of the questions I was thinking of, um, cause I'm, I'm finishing up a series on Genesis. I'm, I got a few more sermons left in that, but I'm in the end of Genesis right now and I'm preaching. Um, Joseph is just now in Genesis 45 revealing his identity to his brothers. And he says, you know, what you meant for evil, uh, the Lord intended or used for mm-hmm. good. Yeah. And I was just wondering, like, I, I hear Christians say, and we even seeing that sort of thing, but is the Lord required to take that which is evil or bad or negative that happens to us? And use it for good. Is he required to do that? Because the way we speak and sing, it's as if he is. But I, I guess my question is, are there things that the Lord does, in fact, that, that are evil and the Lord turns them for good? But are there things that are evil and the Lord doesn't turn them for good? (laughs) Do you understand yeah. my question? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are there are there bad things the Lord does not turn for good? Like, is well, He required by default to take bad things and turn them for good? I, I want to say no to that, but I I think He does it a lot. I just yeah, I don't know. It seems very uh I don't know. Like pre we were presupposing that he does that. But anyway, so I think it's an interesting sort of tangent to, to have here. Well, if the Lord is good, you know, he's good and he's seeking people and he wants all people to be saved. And he set up the world in such a way that uh, there's a freedom of choice, even though he enables that choice, doesn't mean that he necessitates it, right? He doesn't force us to choose him. If he did, then, you know, his wanting all to be saved would result that he would force everyone to respond positively to him. And he doesn't seem to be doing that, but he is working for everyone to be saved. I would say he's good. He's merciful. Um, but he also, you know, loves people. And so I think he pursues it. Uh, so what we might see as evil maybe is an opportunity, you know, for good to come about. It may be a consequential kind of punishment or, you know, this bad thing is happening because there's sin in the world and that should alert us that something is wrong. I have a theory that, you know, pain actually serves a very good purpose, pain, and then also suffering. Um, and well, that it is can. turn us to the Lord. It well, can. Yeah, I mean, there can be awful meaningless suffering, I suppose, but even that person's suffering has an intended consequence to say something is wrong. Something is wrong in this world. And it gives testimony that something is wrong. Um, but I mean, there's a horrendous evils that happen in the world and horrendous suffering. So, um, 
Could it be communicated without such horrendous suffering? I guess would be a question. I mean, people is the Lord death is the Lord awful. always turning pain for good or hurt for good or evil for good? I don't know. I mean, I think I, at, at the very least, that's like mm-hmm. I think that's where I'm at right now. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't want to sort of just rip that verse out of context that the Lord you know, works yeah, all yeah. things for good and sort of bend that to fit. Um, yeah. That, that verse has a specific meaning in a specific context. And I think people yeah, do that yeah. a lot, but sometimes yeah. it, it does seem like, uh, you know, maybe the, maybe things happen and the Lord doesn't turn them for good, but sometimes it seems like he absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. Good uh, question. Yeah, I just don't want to operate on the assumption that if something bad happens to me, like that the Lord is somehow required to turn that for good. Mm. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's very presupposing. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say, what to say about that. Yeah, um, so I think we're midway through the two verses we're going to cover. We didn't talk uh, about Barnabas. Titus at all, though. We talked a little bit yeah, about Barnabas. He's gonna, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna come back to that though, because um, we're just right now. We just have this the this additive participle, this explanatory participle that the going up was accompanied with also Titus. But I think it's the, important to, to talk about Barnabas having a Semitic background and Titus having a uh, Greco-Roman. Or a mm-hmm. Gentile background, I think sure. that I, I don't we don't need we don't want to miss that right that that we have Paul here who is half Jew and half Roman, uh, having at one side Barnabas who has a, a Semitic background, a Jewish background, and Titus who has a Gentile background. Yeah, and that point's going to come out in verse three. Yeah, verse three, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So let's go ahead and take a break now before we turn into uh, Galatians 2.2 and hear from our sponsor, Glossa House. Looking for creative ways to launch your biblical language studies to the next level? We here at Glossa House create resources with you in mind. We've created a stock of innovative and cutting edge audio, video, digital, and print resources to help you reach your language goals. Visit glossahouse.com to find what you've been looking for. Glossa House, language resources for the global community. Welcome back to Proof Text, and we're looking at Galatians uh, chapter 2. You might want to get your Greek Testaments out if you haven't. Follow along. Michael's reading. And you already read verse 2, right? Or are you going to no, read that? Now? No, I just oh. read verse 1. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to go on to look at Galatians 2 2 after Michael reads it. Yeah, here we go. Anevende kata apokalypsin, ke anathemen avtius to evangelion, o keriuso endius etnesin, katidian de tius docusin, me pos iskenon trejo e edramon. Great. Great, thank you. How long did it take you to get proficient reading it? I mean, I'm getting better, but I'm I'm nowhere near you. But um, I think because I'm hearing and seeing certain patterns again, uh, uh, you know, in words as I read them, 
it, it kind of is coming easier and easier. How long did it take you to feel like you were proficient in reading uh, using Cap Koine era pronunciation? Um, a few months. <laughs> uh huh. But you were teaching actively in it too, right? Yeah, that that's why because I was speaking Greek all the time, and yeah, um, at the beginning, like it was it was probably pretty rough, uh, but. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things where I don't I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but you just force yourself to like do it, and it eventually it like just comes. So, yeah, yeah, a few no, months. That's great. that's great. So, um, all right. So verse two then uh, the de indicates like a next step or or something additional added. Uh, it's, he says, and I went up on a bane. So that's, that's the uh, second aorist, uh, uh, indicative first singular. Um, and I went up according to revelation, kata apocalypsin, apocalypsin. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then he, and then he says, and I laid out to them, I set out. The gospel which I am preaching among the nations. Let's wow. let's talk about this. I uh, went up according to a revelation. Yeah. I know we touched on it briefly in uh, earlier podcast, but um, so I think we agree on this that this is uh, not referring to a revelation given directly to Paul himself. Uh, I I don't know if we agree on this, but I think we do. So if yeah. you go to Acts 21.10, um, we get the name of a person named Agabus. Um, and it says, and we remaining many more days, uh, or after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So we have this uh, Judean or Jewish prophet. And then, so that's Acts 21.10. If you back up to Acts 11.28, we also read of this. Uh, one of them named Agabus, so the same prophet, stood up through the and stood up and uh, signified through the spirit that a severe famine would spread over the entire uh, world, right? The inhabited world. Yeah. And uh, this happened during the reign of Claudius. Yeah. So I, in my opinion. When Paul says in 2 2 that he went up according to a revelation, I think yeah. this is what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And in that context, then, um, in again, looking at Le- Le- Acts 11, uh, they, they're bringing it, they're bringing uh, a, col- uh, a collection, like money, yes. relief. So if you look at verse 29, and in proportion to any of the disciples that they had means, each of them determined uh, to give uh, relief to the brethren in Judea, the siblings in Judea, which they sent along Mm -hmm. to the elders through the hand of Barnabas and Saul, verse 30. So 1130. So that's, I agree with you. That is the revelation and the circumstance that Paul goes to Jerusalem after that first time. So he met, he went up to see Peter and talk to James briefly. And then the next narrative element in Galatians two 
is that he went up according to revelation. This revelation concerned a financial need uh, yeah. and then the prophet that a prophet spoke to. And uh, then he went up with um, Barnabas. Yeah. yeah. And also Acts eleven twenty seven, 27, right? It says, uh, and, and during these days, um, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. One of which was Agabus. Yeah. yeah into Antioch. Right. Yeah, so yeah. he's at Antioch and we're going to read about that in, in this chapter. Right. Uh, and then these prophets from Jerusalem come down to Antioch and they speak this word in Antioch about a famine uh, that's going to descend upon the whole inhabited world, including Jerusalem. And Paul hears this word from this trusted prophet, Agabus, and that's what sparks uh, him leaving Antioch to return to Jerusalem. Yep. Yep. That's good. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Because the alternative view is that the events that are described in Galatians 2 and the confrontation he has with Peter and and whatnot occurs in Acts from Acts 15, right. the council, the Jerusalem council. But um, there's a problem with, with that, and that would be that Paul would be lying in Galatians 2 about his trips to Jerusalem. Yeah, chronologically, doesn't chronologically, matter. Paul would be not telling the truth, or Luke really got it quite wrong in his depiction in Acts of how many yeah. times that Paul is traveling. So neither of them are good. Those are not good options to me. Luke is has shown himself to be, you know, he's con- he explicitly he, he's concerned with accuracy. If you go back to Luke chapter one, the opening prologue there, he's concerned with accuracy. And then secondly, he's just been shown to be a good historian. I mean, there's been times when people were questioning this or that, and they found archaeological evidence to show that, no, actually, he's accurate. So I think it's, I think this is the best solution and actually makes sense because one of the, so in in Acts 11, he's going up to Jerusalem to help with the relief, uh, financial and other kinds of relief for the brethren there in Galatians 2. He's, we're going to see that he's he's agreeing to help with continued relief for the poor. So, you know, just thematically everything, you know, chronologically right. things make better sense. Thematically it makes sense. And, um, yeah, so logically in terms of the circumcision issue, it makes the best sense as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. So he went up according to Revelation. And what did he do there? So in the rest of chapter two, then how would you want to translate the rest of chapter two? And he's, he laid out to them. Um, yeah. Do you want, are you asking? Yeah, me I'm asking me? you. Yeah. Go ahead and want to translate oh. the rest of that. Uh, he went or up, I can. So or, or you're talking about, and he went up to them or sorry. Yeah, so, he, he and said, he went up he according to, to a revelation and he declared yeah. to them, right. Yeah. The gospel, the one, uh, the one that uh, I presented or I'm presenting uh, in the nations or into the, among the Gentiles. Yeah. Right. Um, and then he says that uh, it seems <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Um, so the Katidian, uh, there, so we have a there, there, right. Continuing the building from the previous, the, so, Mm-hmm. We, we don't have a 
uh, a disconnecting here. How do you do this katidian? Um, yeah, a pri- it's an idiom, right? Kata idion, uh, according to um, each one or one's own, uh, it, it means privately, really, privately. And, and moreover, privately to the seeming ones. Yeah, to, to the one's seeming. seeming. <laughs> that, I, love, I love how he does that. Um, or supposing, yeah. Yeah, to the to the seeming ones or supposing ones. I like that supposing ones. Um, the, I, it's often like this idea of esteemed ones, the ones who think highly of themselves, right? They, um, those who repute themselves to be something, right? Or recognize to the recognized ones. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. To the recognized um, ones. Yeah. Yeah. So then he, he goes on and says, uh, something to the effect of lest somehow uh, into emptiness or into vanity um, I might run or had run, did run. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Less perchance, lest mepos is canon treco, less perchance I am running in vanity yeah. or into vanity or ran a ran in vain. So that's the second aorist uh, dramo. Uh, a dramon is the second aorist formation of treco. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yep. What so he think? wants to make sure he's running or has had been running, not in vain. <clears throat> why do yeah. you think he uses these, uh, I mean, trejo and, uh, of course, edramon is a form of trejo, right? You said it's a... Second, second errorist error. form. Uh, yeah. Why? Why this specific set of words? Because it it evokes perhaps an athletic metaphor, but we don't have to go there. Um, yeah. So why, yeah, it why is metaphoric? Use this, why use this imagery, language, and imagery of running? That's really good. Yeah, it's clearly metaphor. But then he also is one in in motion. You know, he's traveling, he's on a mission. So I'm wondering if it's, if, if the metaphor like is invited in because he is one who is on journeys, he's moving a lot, but then he does, you know, talk about, you know, the the running the race to win. You know, I think he uses that in first Corinthians nine. Could he be running from persecutors running for his life? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's different situations that one about which one runs um i don't think so but uh but but there may be some implications there i mean i think treco yeah i think it's more it means to run or rush later later he's gonna i think the contrast is very just very intriguing because when he when he calls them those recognize those seeming those reputed to be something right later in the chapter he's going to talk about them being reputed to be pillars right um and what verse is that i'm scrolling through oh yeah it's verse nine right and he, he names some specifically there he names jacob or as we often translate it james uh, yep. Peter, Cephas, 
and John, and he uses the same thing there, Yudokundes, mm-hmm. right? Um, same as we just saw, those reputed, those esteemed, those supposed, ine, to be pillars. Now, I just think it's interesting because uh, when you, when you, I think that in verse two, that that's what he's thinking. Like when he says, you could almost just put stilu there again, right? Yeah. Those yeah. reputed to be pillars. And so you have this image, contrasting imagery of static, like fixed versus like on the move. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That's really good. And honor if, uh, and very honorific. Yeah, this this verb, dokeo, used as a substantive participle like if you go to BDAG, it's it's used of dignitaries like it it's interesting yeah it, it's a technical jargon for like honor and shame you know but used used in an honor sense um you know those who are recognized so he's using it as an idiom but yeah that's very insightful you know so prominent dignitaries it's used in that sense um and that they say that that's how paul is using it here but I think your insight that, you know, his pillar is a stationary thing versus Paul, who is on the move and he's running a race and uh, he's, he's, he's moving. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Yeah. So the gospel, the good news that Paul is preaching among the nations mm-hmm. and uh, less perchance the may post. Uh, and then treco is a, actually a present subjunctive form, which is the same as the present indicative. So the only way you'd know the difference is just by context. And when you have a may post, you're looking for a subjunctive uh, form. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see also uh, just um, here he talks about the to uh, evangelion that he carousled, right? That he doesn't say like remember back in chapter one he talks about the gospel that he gospeled well here he has the gospel that he preaches or declares yeah um so it's interesting to see uh i guess just he's doing different things with the gospel at one point he's gospeling it at another point Mm -hmm. he's preaching it and what is the difference yeah yeah Yeah, that's a good term and i of course i like to you know, good question and observation. I'd like to keep looking at this from the perspective of uh, the counter good news that he's presenting for the nations in contrast to the good news is, or the good news of the emperor. And uh, that inscription that's found in Priene in Asia Minor, but also other places actually uses Evangelion in the plural to refer mm-hmm. to the good news of the emperor Augustus uh, being being brought forward into the world and uh, bringing peace to land and sea and these kinds of things. Like there's an analog. The gospel of Jesus Christ is analogous to elements of the good news of, of Caesar Augustus. And of course we think it's more than an analog that the, the, the good news of Jesus is of course the real good news and does not require submission of the nations or conquering of the nations in in the way that the subduing of the nations is occurring under the Roman Empire. So I think people would have been like blind 
not to see that connection. It's it's subtle to us because of our translations, and we're just not used to the we're not seeing the romanization of monumentations in these big cities. But people would have been aware of it, and would have been aware that Paul is in fact engaged in a counter imperial message proclamation. Yeah, he's he's, he's he's operating on two two anti fronts, really, right? So he's. He's offering a counter to the imperial message, but also at the same time, uh, he's offering a counter message to what the troublemakers in Galatia Judea. are. Yeah, yeah the, the, these uh, people who are always following behind him and attempting to undo his yeah. his ministry. So he's yeah. at at the simultaneously right. He's 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 having to work. Yeah. Against those two fronts, yeah. while at the same time promoting yeah. what he views as the legit front. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. It that come it really comes to the forefront in Ephesians two eleven. If you look at that context, there's a lot of ostracism against the nations. You know, they're 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 labeled as uncircumcised. They don't have the gods. They're they're alienated from citizenship of Israel. These kinds of things. Like this was part of you know, the, the, the viewpoint that they were, they were not appreciated um, by the, by these opponents of Paul and, th- and therefore, uh, you know, as Gentiles. So therefore they're, they're wanting them to be circumcised. They're wanting them to come into mm. compliance with Judaism. Um, and Paul, so Paul's resisting that, like you say, and he's resisting the, the good news of the emperor. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, And so a couple of things here, and then maybe we can wrap up, but we have the prepositional yeah. phrase in the middle, entusethnesine. So uh, in the nations or among the Gentiles, however we want to do that, among the nations. That's why I think it's uh, important in verse 1 that we acknowledge both Barnabas and Titus, right? and Titus specifically being... Um, an ethnos right a gentile and uh so he's got a gentile by his side can can you say uh, do you have any thoughts on the difference between uh evangelizo and keruso what it means to gospel something versus to so what is it what's the difference between to gospeling a gospel and preaching a gospel do you have any thoughts on that well, the, the Kerux is a herald, um, and some philosophers would be considered themselves Kerux, you know, representing maybe uh, some philosophy or, you know, the message of nature or something like that, a Kerux. So there's some interesting analogs that way for like itinerant <laughs> preachers, but Evangelion is more overtly political. Yeah, not, uh, the good news of the of the victory uh, battle of a king. So there there is some overlap, but I see Keruso as being more gener- generic. Uh, but then Evangelion being more political. That's my my understanding. Do you? Hmm. What's yours? You, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I tend to think of. Uh... And I, I may be wrong here, but I tend to think of 
when we use when we see this word evangelizo, he's he's um, or not just him, but whoever that verb is associated with is sort of introducing the gospel message. Whereas I see Caruso uh, is not mm. introducing it, but on a continuing basis using it to teach mm. and disciple. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess the difference between evangelizing and discipling, um, I don't know, that, that's kind of where my mind goes, but I may be off on that. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would agree with that, but I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, to consider evangelion i think is predicated upon like victory so like the start of things like there's something to announce here because there's been a victory won yeah that's why i say introduction yeah. So, yeah so that could that could lend itself towards this is where this is where the message starts yeah so i, I think it's that yeah that initial foray that initial introduction whereas caruso happens uh, consistently afterward um so i um, like in, in the congregation where i pastor like um we so so our sunday mornings i don't give evangelistic messages right i i preach i i teach and uh the goal is discipleship on sunday mornings not evangelism or not like s- trying to be seeker sensitive or whatever that is like mm-hmm. uh we're, we're not our sunday mornings are not geared towards reaching unbelievers or or nuns as they would call them um but discipling the faithful who are already there and then in other contexts we will uh think about evangelism but um evangel- you know doing evangelism happens elsewhere not on in the sunday morning or in our home groups that that sort of thing yeah that makes sense well um do you have a parting shot for us michael yeah i do um this comes from the famed carl truman the great theologian philosopher if you've never read him i would highly encourage you to read him um and this was written in 20 12 um he says this uh, you really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world frankly in a couple of years this is 2012 you wrote this frankly in a couple of years it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban glibberish you spout, how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in, and how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. Mm. 2012 wow very prophetic well thank you everybody Uh, thanks Michael for joining us and um, we, we look forward to having you listen to us next time hello